Well, this evening as we come to the ninth commandment, we turn in our scripture, or for our scripture lesson in the Bible to Exodus chapter 20, and we come tonight to verse 16, which is the ninth commandment. So this is the word of God for us tonight as we read Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, which again God spoke to Israel. And then later himself wrote with his very finger on the tablets of stone that he gave to Moses. And so this is the word of God and it's recorded here faithfully without error by Moses, by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Exodus chapter 20 verse 16, the word of God, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This ends the reading of God's word for us at this time. May we pray. Lord, we do pray that as we consider your word this evening that we would be changed by it, that we would be heeding what you have to say and thinking of all of the ways in which this commandment is applied throughout Scripture, to learn the ways in which we can best reflect your righteousness and flee from unrighteousness. We pray that you would therefore open our hearts that, that we might not merely understand this word, but that we might love it and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you've noticed, no doubt, that the main focus in this sermon series on the the summary of God's law that we find in the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, as it's often called, if you ever hear that word, it simply means the Ten Words or the Ten Statements, and it's another word for the Ten Commandments. But you'll Notice that uh, a focus for this sermon series on these things has been uh, really what has often been called the pedagogical use of the law. That's just a fancy term as uh, the child leading, the teaching use of the law. And particularly, uh, that refers to using the law as a mirror. We've also used some of the didactic use, which is the instructional use. How do you live as Christ's people? So, uh, again, we note the moral law has three uses uh, the other one is called the civil use. That's that, that one that I usually list third. The, that's uh, the one that uh, restrains evil, the use of the law to restrain evil generally in the world, to keep the, the world from being as bad as it could be. It's a way that God gives his grace commonly to mankind and also especially to the church to, to make the world a better place for the church to exist in, though it will not be perfect. But uh, maybe... People hear the the Ten Commandments, for example, and out of fear of judgment or a desire to get along or whatever, that even if they don't have a true love for the Lord, they will strive to obey at least some of these commandments, and that makes the world not as bad as it could be. That pedagogical use I mentioned was usually the one that I mentioned first. That's to lead us to Christ. It's the one that we often say is the law is like a mirror. And so it shows us who we are, that we are sinners, that we need to be cleansed by Christ. So it, it shows us that we are in desperate need of a Savior. And then the didactic use, the instructional use, really instructs us on how to live as God's redeemed people. So how do you show God that you're thankful? How do you serve God as someone who is redeemed in Christ Jesus? Our major, major focus for now is on that, that uh, usually what I list is the first use of the law, the pedagogical use, that to see you know, how we violate these commandments. And that we therefore cannot please God 
or earn his favor by our own merits or our moral power within us. And then also we look a bit at how we can serve God by this law. First, we have to understand the meaning of each of these commandments if we're going to do that. How is it that, uh, that we have violated this commandment or how, what, what do we need to change or what, is, what needs to be changed by Christ? Why do we need Christ? And so we have to really understand what does the commandment mean? And so today, this evening, we come to the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Well, first and foremost, the wording of that in the Hebrew applies to legal testimony. That's why it's translated this way, bearing false witness. That word witness there has to do uh, with legal testimony. This is speaking here primarily of the context of courts of law and also contracts. So anything that's, that's legally binding. If we do not hold truth as sacred, if we do not love truth, Innocent men and women go to prison or suffer the death penalty. The guilty go free to commit more crimes. And people are defrauded of what is rightfully theirs. So this commandment has as its most straightforward goal the forbidding of false testimony in legal cases. If witnesses commit perjury with impunity, there can be no justice in a human society. This is why it's so dangerous when we find that large blocks of a culture might think that that their goals are good and therefore by any means necessary is acceptable. So the the ends justify the means. And so uh, such people are not going to have any qualms about lying about you in a court of law if they think that that would further their societal goals. If witnesses commit perjury with impunity like that, we can't have any justice in a society. In Deuteronomy 19, 15-21, the Lord commands that someone convicted of lying in a court of law, perjury, was to bear the same penalty that the person they're falsely testifying against would have borne if they had been found guilty. So, if they were a thief, if you were testifying falsely that somebody stole something, then it would be your place to pay a fine that uh, would have been equivalent to the restoration that the thief would have had to to pay to restore property to the one they stole against, stole from. If it was a capital case, like murder, for example, then you would bear the death penalty if you were found to be guilty of perjury in a murder case. But at its heart, the Ninth Commandment is concerned more broadly with truth in all that we say and do. Back when we studied the third commandment against taking the Lord's name in vain, we read a passage from Matthew 5 in which Jesus is, uh, is concerned with swearing oaths. Here in Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37, we read again, this is Jesus speaking, Again you have heard that it was said, To those of old, you shall not swear falsely. He's actually referencing the ninth commandment there. But shall perform your oaths to the Lord. There's also applications of the ninth commandment in scriptures like Deuteronomy 23, for example. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, 
nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. And we know from a deeper examination of what's going on there, that as we put it in its biblical context, its historical context, we find that Jesus is not forbidding all taking of oaths or vows whatsoever, uh, but a misuse of oaths and vows. Of course, without oaths and vows, we couldn't have contracts, we couldn't have oaths of office, we couldn't have wedding vows. We couldn't have the vows that we take as a covenant of communicant membership. But rather what we see is that Jesus was condemning a deceptive practice that was known in Jewish society of his day among some Jews, whereby uh, they would swear an oath by heaven or the temple, as particularly, of course, other Jews would know better usually, but, but if they were uh, having dealings with Gentiles, they might swear by the temple or something other than God that a non-Jew might assume is binding because Jews hold these things sacred. And all the while, that Jewish person in question might feel free, and some of the Pharisees told them they were, They were free to violate such an oath because he didn't actually swear by the name of the Lord. Jesus says here, oh, those things belong to the Lord, so you're actually still swearing by the Lord. And then in Matthew 23, verses 16 through 22, we see a further explanation here from Jesus. In Matthew 23, 16 through 22, Woe to you, blind guides, who say whoever swears by the temple, is, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Notice that. You swear by the temple, that's nothing, but by the gold of the temple, you're obliged to perform it. Uh, something as if, I think what's probably behind that is the notion that if you swear to give money to the temple, you'd better do it, but otherwise you're free. Fools and blind, Jesus says. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God. By him who sits on it. In other words, swearing by the temple of the Lord is to swear by the Lord. To swear by heaven is to swear by the Lord's throne and the one who sits on it. So again, it's to swear by the Lord. The Lord holds us accountable to keep our word. Jesus declared that all oaths are binding unless that oath is, to, is an oath to sin. Because God made anything by which we might actually swear an oath. Somebody might say, I swear on my mother's grave, or something like that. And Well, you'd better mean it. We ought to be careful not to make rash oaths. And maybe if we're going to swear an oath, we should just swear by the name of the Lord and let our yes be yes and our no be no. Mean what we say. That's really what's at the heart of what Jesus is saying here. That truth in our words 
is what counts here. We can never deem ourselves free to lie or mislead someone or be consciously deceptive in any way. To do so is to, is to violate this commandment. Well, of course, we violate the ninth commandment. If we would ever perjure ourselves in a court of law, that's clearly the first meaning of the, uh, of the commandment itself. And we can all see that it's, it's most common application. Of course, all of us were taught this probably if we were taught the Ten Commandments. It's most common application is, is against lying in general. So we can broaden that from perjury in court to any kind of lie. We all see that bald-faced lying is, is clearly forbidden by the Ninth Commandment. But as I've done with a few of the other commandments, let me read to you the summary of the entire testimony of Scripture on the Ninth Commandment. Its expanded application in Scripture is found in the Westminster Larger Catechism. Now, each of these points has a biblical reference. We won't be going through all the biblical references here this evening for the sake of time. Uh, but I would encourage you, uh, you know, get a copy of the Larger Catechism and look at the the biblical references at the proof text, and you'll see how much God actually cares about our truthfulness. It's very enlightening. But the Catechism says here, as a summary of Scripture, the sins forbidden in the Ninth Commandment are all prejudicing of the truth and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own. So I'll stop there and just throw the anything that is against your neighbor's good name. You're spreading something that, uh, that may or may not be true, or you don't know for sure, well, don't say it, right? And things about your own name, those things that would prejudice people against the truth about who you actually are. Especially in public judicature, so it's saying especially in courts of law, because that's the first application of the words in the Hebrew there. So giving false evidence, suborning false witnesses, so lying in court or getting somebody else to lie in court. Wittingly appearing and pleading for an evil cause. So in other words, you knowingly show up in court or in public, a public forum and give support for an evil cause. That's actually a means of violating this because it undermines the truth in general. Outfacing and overbearing the truth. So in other words... Maybe you tell the truth, but you add a whole bunch of other stuff on top of it so that it sort of obscures the truth, right? You overbear the truth with other things. Passing unjust sentence. So if you're on a jury or a judge in a courtroom who has to pass a sentence and you pass a sentence that's not just for the crime, well, that's also a way of prejudicing the truth. So maybe somebody stole a pack of gum and you sentenced them to 60 years in prison. Well, that's a little bit uh, overkill there, so to speak, right? Uh, that would actually be a way that, that undermines the truth because it it's places that crime on a level with much more serious crimes. Calling evil good. That's something we see a lot in our society, and good evil. When people say that the preaching of the whole counsel of God's word is evil because they classify certain things in the Bible as hate speech. Well, that's, that's a violation of the Ninth Commandment. Rewarding the wicked according to the work of the righteous, and the righteous according to the work of the wicked. So in other words, punishing something for something they did, punishing someone for something they didn't do, or rewarding someone for something they didn't do. Forgery, that's obvious. Concealing the truth. 
So you know the truth, but you keep it hidden. Undo silence in a just cause. So you don't speak up when you should. Holding our peace when iniquity calleth for either a reproof from ourselves or a complaint to others. So we know that something has been, a crime, for example, has been committed and we don't say anything about it. Speaking the truth unseasonably. So there are times when we, so you notice they'll say there are times when we shouldn't keep our mouths shut. <laughs> there are other times when wisely we should. Speaking the truth unseasonably can actually be a way of, of promoting untruth. Maliciously, or speaking the truth maliciously to a wrong end. Or perverting it to a wrong meaning. So the words you say are technically true, but you know that the people that you're saying it to and the way you're saying it are going to interpret it another way. Think of an example of that that I encountered several times in my past. would be one where, uh, say you're in an academic setting. And in an academic setting, we'll be talking literarily about the word myth. And in a, a literary context, in an academic setting, many people will use the term myth simply to, to mean a story that explains how the world came to be the way it is. And so uh, we'll note, well, does the Bible contain stories that explain how the world came to be the way it is? Indeed it does. And so under that academic definition, we could say the Bible contains myth. And as C.S. Lewis would say, uh, the difference between that and the myths of the, the heathens is that the Bible is true myth. He isn't saying the Bible is truly fake stories, right? false stories. He meant the Bible is, has, contains true stories about how things got to be the way they are. But of course, you might be in that academic setting, and I've seen this happen before, and and in that context, you'll, you'll be talking about myth under that definition, just, see, just meaning a, a, a term uh, for, uh, for a story that explains how the world got to be the way it is. And you'll say, well, under that definition, yes, the Bible contains myths. And then someone in another context will turn around and say, see, even that conservative Daniel Hipkin over there says that the Bible contains myth. And they know full well that the people they're talking to don't know that academic definition that they were just using. And so, so they'll, uh, they know that what most people hear when they hear the word myth is a fake story. A story about something that did not happen. And of course, somebody who believes the Bible doesn't think the Bible has any stories that, that didn't happen except in the cases of some parables. But then when the Bible is telling us something historically happened, it happened. And so, uh, so while under the academic definition we might say that the, the account of the creation of Adam and Eve is a myth, and the fall into sin is a myth, well, we know that most people hear that. If they heard us say that the fall of Adam and Eve is a myth, they would hear us saying, it's a fake story. It's false. And people will twist that truth like that. Speak the truth unseasonably or maliciously to a wrong end, perverting it to a wrong meaning, or a doubtful and equivocal expression to the prejudice of truth or justice. Right? Perverting the truth to a wrong meaning really is an example that I just gave there. But it does, the larger catechism goes on and says, or in doubtful or equivocal expression, so you're, you're 
hedging your words so that later on you can say, well, I technically told the truth even though you're misleading people. To the prejudice of truth or justice. Speaking untruth, lying, slandering, backbiting. So outright lying, obviously. Slandering, backbiting. So there's malicious gossip. Detracting, tail-bearing, whispering. It's not talking about just lowering your voice. (laughs) It's talking about, again, gossip. Malicious gossip. Whispering. Scoffing. So dismissing the truth. Reviling, making fun of the truth. Rash, harsh, and partial censuring. So being too rash, too quick to censure someone, too harsh in your punishment of another, or not harsh enough. Misconstruing intentions. We see that a lot in political discourse, don't we? Where people will take someone else's words out of context and misconstrue, purposefully misconstrue what they were saying. Misconstruing words and actions. Flattering. Vainglorious boasting. So, you know, bragging about yourself in ways that, that make it, you sound more special than you are. Thinking or speaking too highly or too meanly of ourselves or others. Right? So you're prejudicing the truth by praising someone beyond what they deserve for yourself and or not praising them enough. Right? Uh, false modesty. Right? Where you deserve an accolade and you say, no, 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 I don't, I don't deserve that. Denying the gifts and graces of God. So somebody identifies your gifts, and you say, no, I don't have that gift. I'm not going to use it. Aggravating smaller faults. So making mountains out of molehills, so to speak. Hiding, excusing, or extenuating of sins. When called to a free confession. Unnecessarily discovering of infirmities. So I know that you have a, a weakness, and nobody else needs to know about that weakness. But then here in the pulpit I say, yeah, you know what, Norm has this weakness. Let me tell you about Norm's weakness, everybody. Well, that would be unnecessary. Harmful to him. That's actually, in a way, prejudicing truth against him. Raising false rumors. Receiving and countenancing evil reports. So if we don't know something's true, but we act as if it is, then that's actually prejudicing the truth. So that's that's a violation of the Ninth Commandment. Stopping our ears against just defense. So we've heard, we, we want to believe something bad about someone, and we know that there's evidence to the contrary, but we won't, we won't look at it. That would be, against again, prejudicing the truth. Evil suspicion. Envying or grieving at the deserved credit of any, endeavoring or desiring to impair it. So undermining good credit that somebody else deserves. Rejoicing in their disgrace and infamy. Scornful contempt. Fond admiration. So again, thinking too lowly of someone else or too highly. Breach of lawful promises. Neglecting such things as are of good report. Practicing or not avoiding ourselves or not hindering what we can in others, such as procure an ill name. There's a lot of ways in which we can undermine the truth and labor against the truth and thus violate this commandment. So in other words, any way in which we fail to love truth and to speak it in love, 
All of those are ways we break the ninth commandment. If we try to save ourselves or enter the Lord's glorious presence on our own merit, I hope we can all see here by now we're lost. Who of us has always perfectly honored truth? I love the truth, but I haven't perfectly honored it, I can tell you. Who's never told a lie? Who's never been falsely modest? Who has never gossiped or thought ill without evidence of someone else? Well, so far, if we're honest, we're zero for nine out of the nine commandments that we've covered so far. I can think of them in the right order. We have all, we're all God-dishonoring, idolatrous, blaspheming, Sabbath-breaking, parent-dishonoring, murderous, thieving, adulterous liars. If we tried to enter God's presence of our own merits, we would be lost. But God, praise to Him, has given us a Savior. He laid on Christ, the only one who kept these commandments perfectly, the only sinless one, and the only one who is fully human and fully God. He laid on Him the guilt of us all for violating these commands. He bore God's infinite wrath on the cross. The only one who is God could have borne infinite wrath in His three hours on the cross. Well, in response, what do we do? Relative to this commandment, We endeavor to love the truth, to honor it in every appropriate way. The Westminster Larger Catechism summarizes the Bible's teaching on that, the the positive side. What does this commandment require us to do? It says the duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man, and the good name of our neighbor as well as our own, appearing and standing for the truth, and from the heart sincerely, freely, clearly, and fully speaking the truth, and only the truth in matters of judgment and justice. Well, let me tell you a pet peeve of mine is that uh, the only uh, one or two occasions I've had to speak in a court of law, one time it didn't really uh, make a whole lot of difference, but another time I was actually questioned, actually examined by a lawyer very briefly, but he wouldn't let me finish what I was trying to say. You know, I, I was I I promised to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So when a lawyer tries to keep the witness from telling the whole truth, they're actually prejudicing the truth there. Well, what we ought to do in matters of judgment and justice is speak the truth and only the truth, the whole truth. So it says in matters of judgment and justice and in all other things whatsoever. A charitable esteem of our neighbors. So we, we don't want to think the worst of others without evidence. We, we assume we should be charitable toward them. Loving, desiring, and rejoicing in their good name. Sorrowing for and covering of their infirmities. So it's not trying to cover up crime. But we don't, uh, when we see somebody else's moral weakness, we don't have to publicize it. But help them to overcome it. Freely acknowledging of their gifts and graces, defending their innocency, a ready receiving of good report, an unwillingness to admit of an evil report concerning them, discouraging talebearers, flatterers, and slanderers, 
love and care of our own good name, defending it when need requireth. So, you know, if something you're accused of, of something that you haven't done, defending yourself is absolutely appropriate. You don't say, oh, I'm just going to be humble and wait this out. No, you're actually prejudicing the truth against yourself there. It's absolutely appropriate and God-honoring for you to honor the truth and defend yourself, defend your good name. Keeping of lawful promises, studying and practicing of whatsoever things are true, honest, lovely, and of good report. How wonderful life would be if we were all obeying this commandment fully. But these are some ways that we can serve Christ well as we learn to obey this commandment. Let us love the truth. And remember that Jesus himself said he is the way, the truth, and the life. So when we honor truth, we're honoring Christ. If we love Christ, we will love truth. If we love truth, we will love Christ. So let us love the truth and thereby love our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, indeed, we do love your truth. We know that all truth is yours. We pray that you would keep us in the truth and build us up in a love for it. Change us by your word daily that we might love and serve truth, that we might speak the truth in love as we have been commanded to do, that we might do all of these things to the glory of Christ Jesus, who himself is the way, the truth, and the life, and in whose name we now pray. Amen.